Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Hey, and welcome to the 55-yard line tonight here at CFL America Radio. It's the first ever true Canadian football podcast network and sports history network crossover. So we take a deep dive into the rich tapestry of Edmonton football from the Elks to the Eskimos, back to the Elks again with turf with the Turf District's very own Superfan Mike, who is coming to us direct tonight from the Turf District South and home to the unofficial, unofficial Edmonton Football Hall of Fame. Mike? On behalf of Scott and myself, welcome my brother from another mother to the show. Thanks for having me, boys. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great to uh, get to sit, talk about uh, football at any time. And anytime people tell me not to shut up when I'm talking about football history, is a great day. Well, you know, the great thing about these podcasts is, is we can all talk to each other about football and things that other people look at us weird about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't have that maniacal look on my face when I start slobbering it. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad we could talk about a CFL season that's actually going to begin very yeah, soon. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Coming soon. We were all pretty excited when that happened on June 1st. That's for sure. I have never seen Twitter more happy, at least CFL Twitter. My phone blew up. And actually, I was, uh, it was the same day I was on my way to get my second dose. Of, oh. uh, the Moderna vaccine, oh. so <laughs> I couldn't be anywhere near my computer, so my phone was just exploding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but you know, with that said, though, I mean, you think about that day, and it's like, how could they made any other decision but start the season? It's it was kind of you know, I, I figured it was in the bag. I just, what about you? Yeah, I was pretty sure it had to happen. I was, um, 
uh, a little surprised that uh, nothing was really changing. Like they talked about a 14 game season and I thought, okay, they're announcing it. They're going to say, yes, we're having a season, but, but it was pretty much everything they had promised once they went from that eight game to 14 game season. So I was pretty thrilled by it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, in, in 14 games too. That's kind of a throwback to the old NFL schedule. So when I saw that, I said, okay, that's, that's a full season. I mean, it may not be a traditional full CFL season, but it's close enough. Yeah. I mean, we used to have like, again, going back, talking about the history, uh, when Edmondson rejoined the league in 1949, we were playing um, 14 game seasons back then too. So right. this is a real throwback. Uh, of course, we were playing it in two months. You played every Saturday and Monday back wow. then. So, um, but still, you know what? I'm, I'm just absolutely glad we're going to get to see. I mean, I, uh, as many knows, I, I collect old games on DVD. So, I mean, I've got about 600 uh, Edmondson football games on DVD right now. And then a couple hundred for non-Edmondson games. So it's uh, as much as I love watching those games, it'll be nice to see a game where I don't know the outcome. Yeah, yeah really. true, true, true. Hey, well, speaking... I guess you've seen a lot of Tom Wilkinson games. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead, go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. No, I was just uh, when I first started the CFL when they were showing the uh, the games in stateside back in the mid '70s. I yep. remember uh, Tom Wilkinson just. Uh, you know, he was, even though I, I didn't cheer for Edmonton, I was always so impressed by what he was able to do. I mean, the dude was just indestructible, it seemed like. Absolutely. I mean, he still lives here in town. Uh, I've been lucky enough uh, with my podcast partner, Andrew, we've uh, been able to get into the alumni suite at the stadium here. Um, and he's there every game, watching the games, and he is happy to drop everything and just talk about his time with the team and football in general and just an overall great guy um, growing up. So he would have started right before I got into football. I started getting into watching football when I was about five years old. Um, and so I really didn't understand the game until I got a few years older. Um, and when I started just getting to that point, Warren Moon came. And I mean, as far as I was concerned, the sun rose and set on him. I thought he was the greatest thing that had ever put on a uniform. And my dad was always a big Wilkie fan. So he and I would have the big battle on who was a better quarterback, <laughs> Wilkinson or Moon. Um, and it wasn't until I was much older that I started really appreciating what Wilkie did bring to the game, even though he wasn't flashy and, and uh, as explosive. It certainly didn't run the same as, as Warren did. Well, in, in, in talking about that, let's let's start at the beginning with Edmonton football because down here in the states, and you know, um, you know how you're a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so you're very familiar with the football culture down here. I am, but but um, and again, I'm not holding anything against you again with the Steelers. <laughs> I never will. Not after they crushed my Cardinals in 08. But that's no. a whole other that's a whole other topic. That's a different podcast. Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, and talking about Edmonton football for the uninitiated, especially the ones who are listening to this down south and got a, maybe even my nephew's listening to this podcast. Who knows? He said he's listened, but I don't think he has. Um, but tell me, Edmonton football, when did it start? How did it start? Just kind of give us a thumbnail sketch and kind of the floor is yours. Just tell tell everybody just how football in Edmonton started. And yeah, so um Football, as we know it, has sort of been one of those things that has evolved over time. So in the 19th century, um, 
people out east were playing um, something that was a cross between what we think of football and what is British rugby or rugby union at the time. Um, and it was something that they brought down from McGill down to Yale and had a, a game. So they played with British soccer rules for the first game. And the second game, they played by rugby rules and the, the Americans loved it. Um, and then, of course, Walter Camp would have been there. He rules and he modified them into something that's closer to the game we have now but Canada stayed more with the British rugby so in the 1890s um, Edmonton which is very very new everyone has sort of slowly migrated out west to the great migration right just like in the states where everyone is very concentrated in the east and started slowly moving west um, and playing that British rugby union rugby league hadn't even started yet in England um, so once they sort of got about 10 years of that and it was mostly like the townies versus the police, the Northwest Mounted Police, which became the RCMP. Um, and it was inter entertaining, but it was a very rough and tumble game. And, and fans kind of liked it, but that was about it. And it disappeared. Um, in 1907, they sort of brought it back and they said, let's try it again, because uh, what's now South Edmonton was called Strathcona, a separate town, uh, started up a team and they challenged Edmonton to create their own team. They said, okay, we'll give that a shot. And um, it went really well. So the next year they thought, let's try this again. And someone said, hey, we just came from out east and they're playing this really cool game, um, which is sort of what they call Canadian rules football, rugby football. Um, and that was sort of something that was borrowed from a cross between rugby and some of the American rules that Walter and others had developed in the States. So they tried that in 1908, and that was the same year that they went with the name Eskimos. So it's one of those things that they actually talked about. Uh, it was a Calgary reporter who used that as a, a denigrative term to describe the Edmondson people, you know, those Eskimos from up north. Um, but that's actually not what happened, but it's a great story. Uh, saying that that's where the name came from. So I've always said that it's, we're, you know, we're Calgary's fault that we exist in the first place. Um, but they were actually talking about, um, do you, are you familiar with the Carlisle Indian School in, yep, in Pennsylvania? Yep. Right. Right. So they actually referred to, uh, there was an Eskimo at the Carlisle School who is, you know, breaking all the records. And this week, a bunch of Eskimos from Edmonton are going to be coming down to play. And they're actually referring to Jim Thorpe. So this is while he was still at the school and still doing great. But um, the research I've been doing, the team was already called Eskimos. So he wasn't, you know, calling us Eskimos to try and be funny. That's what we were literally called. And, you know, we were the gateway to the north. The name town starts with E. Edmondson Eskimos seemed to work. And our hockey team was called that. Our baseball team was called that. Uh, women's basketball, Stooker, everything was Eskimos. So that's kind of where it started. And, and it just went on from there. Um, the first thing we did was we played Calgary and we beat them. So we thought that was pretty good. So we played them again the next year and beat them again. And we thought that's it. Football is here to stay. And that's kind of the whole beginnings of it. Okay. And, and the Elks and the, and the term Elks, I know the Elks um, was the team nickname many, many years ago. At what point did that, that come in? Yeah. So team names were pretty fluid, just like in all sports in the States and in Canada, like you were just called the name of your city and then the sport. And then the reporters would come up with nicknames and sort of say, you know, like if you were into baseball, my dad's a huge Dodgers fan, but they were 
the Robins, the Super Buzz, they had all kinds of nicknames and at the same time and the Trolley Dodgers, things like that. Uh, same with Edmonton, like we were the Eskimos, but that wasn't really an official name. It was just sort of a nickname we called it. Uh, in 1914, that switched to the Civics. And then, of course, there was a, a world war going on. So when they came back, they were just filled with patriotic fervor. So they were the Edmonton Canucks. And to make it more confusing, the Calgary team was also the Canucks. So you had the Canucks versus Canucks game. So much like everyone makes fun of Edmund, uh, Canadian Football League having two teams named Rough Riders, same kind of deal in 1919. Uh, then we went back to the Eskimos, and in 1922, um, it was expensive to travel back then. Everything was just by train. So we had gone to the Grey Cup in 21 as the Eskimos, and we won again in 22, and, and it was too expensive we had to pay the bills and the biggest sponsor was the fraternal organization the elks club so they said that they would put up some money get some uniforms uh, and then the team said okay well we're going to change our colors to the purple and white of the elks club and we'll call ourselves the elks and that was in 1922 we went to the gray cup so the championship game um and only the second year the west was even allowed to, com to compete and uh yeah we were the elks for that year so uh we didn't win but uh, we at least showed the West belonged. Uh, I think we lost 13-1. So nothing too crazy. But, um, and for Americans listening right now, they're like, what's one point? So I'm <laughs> sure if they listen to this enough by now, they know about the Rouge. You made the extra point, but you missed the touchdown. And that's right. There was a whole lot of single points. Back. <laughs> Scott? Yep. Yeah, no, I'm just uh, – this is just fascinating to me to, to hear someone who knows so much and can explain it so well. I mean, because, you know, again, people – this part of the country, I know me becoming a CFL fan in the 70s. Right. You just figured that's when it started. You know, now that I'm watching the CFL, right. this is when it began. But to hear, you know, the, the, the history, the way you explain it, it's just really, really cool. Thank you. I mean, I was a big fan. So – I was saying before I started when I was five years old, so it would have been 1974. Um, my parents had split up when I was younger and my mom married and she married a man who was an American. He was born and raised in Iowa. I uh, went to Drake university. Um, and so he didn't really understand hockey. Like he was up here. He'd been up here about seven or eight years at that point, but he knew football and we didn't have a professional hockey team at that time. Uh, we hadn't made the NHL until, you know, 70. And so, uh, but we had football and he knew football. So that was how he chose to bond with his future stepson, son, um, was to, you know, introduce me to football, take me to games. Uh, we were at a place called Clark stadium, which was, a, you know, by modern standards, a very quaint little stadium, hold 20 some odd thousand people. Um, and it was just exciting. I had never been around that many people before in my life and seeing the excitement of the team and the colors and everyone yelling, I thought it was phenomenal. And uh, so that was how we bonded. And he would explain the history of the team because he'd been around for a while. And he would say, you know, so every so often they trot out to Jackie Parker uh, or Johnny Bright. And he'd say, talk to Johnny Bright and say, I went to the same college as Johnny Bright. And that means to me, that's like, wow, you're like a, a legend. Like, you know, these people. He's like, well, I don't really know them, but we just went to the same school. So that was kind of how I really got interested in learning what came before me in that sort of 70s era where, I mean, if you're living in Edmonton in the mid-70s, it's a pretty good time to be a CFL fan. Yeah, I was going to say that. That was the golden era, pretty much. Um, yeah. For not 
Well, for football, I mean, football in Edmonton, definitely, but football in general, I mean, all of us are about the same age. So it's kind of that era, that 70s single bar face mask, AstroTurf type uh, type of environment. But I mean, you've gone, I mean, your history is so in depth on your podcast when you do, and you're bringing back the history segment, right? Absolutely. We had to rename it, obviously. Uh, So the podcast used to be the Eskimo Empire podcast. We did change it. Um, We've been looking to rebrand anyway. Uh, And then this is before the team had said they were the name and once they said they were changing it we're like okay well that just makes it easier and we always referred to the environment we were sitting in as the turf district just because the oilers uh, where they play hockey was referred to as the ice district and we're like well they can have an ice district we can have a turf district and that just sort of stuck and everyone started reusing that term around us a lot and so it just sort of seemed natural um so the history was the x history moment uh or this day in x history um and again because they're changing the name. I thought, well, I need something that's going to encompass not just football um, as the Elks, but also the Eskimos. Both of them are double E's. So it became Edmonton football history. History spelt with two E's of the name. So yeah, we're bringing that back. Uh, We've done a couple already. We've started moving just to a video podcast uh, as opposed to just audio. So now we do it in both formats. And uh, I think it translates really well because I get to show off some of the things from the uh, that I've sort of hoarded or collected over the years. And and um, you're talking about, you know, there's this player in 1921. You can show pictures of them or, you know, not really a lot of footage, but you can show pictures or some memorabilia or things from that era. And it sort of makes it a little more tangible for people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I mean, I've watched you guys for years, obviously for years, we've been friends for a long while. And the one thing I like about the not, well, back then you did the podcast and then you did the live separately, but I, what I always loved about again, the live one, it was, I got to see things. I got to learn about Jackie Parker. Right. Um, And among my favorites of the guys that you've talked about is Normie Kwong. Absolutely. And tell me, tell, I mean, we, there's so much, there's so much history to talk about in just a short, just a short hour. For so sure. amongst all the players here that I've got the list of that have played for the Eskimos, um, let's just go through a few of them and I'll start yeah. off with Normie Kwong. If you could tell Pete, I mean, he is really of all the football players that have come both North and South of the border. He is the one guy that never really gets mentioned a lot for the, the barriers he broke. Absolutely. Um, so Normie, uh, who was born, I think, Kwong Lim Yu, uh, was the first Chinese Canadian to play in Canadian football, in professional football in Canada. Um, he was born in Calgary and then ended up um, playing for his hometown, Stampeders, and in his rookie year went to the Grey Cup and won. It was the first Grey Cup that an Alberta team had won. Um, and that annoyed the, uh, the sportsmen in Edmonton so much, they formed a team the next year. Um, Normie was very stubborn. Like he was incredibly talented halfback, but he was very stubborn when it came time to renewing his contract. And back then, much like in most sports, when a team had you signed, there was no, well, you're a free agent now because you played for two years. Uh, you were just, you were their property. And he said, well, I'm not going to play unless you pay me this kind of money. So um, Edmondson ended up um, having this one player in their first year. Um, he played fairly well. He was more of a baseball guy. And he didn't play in the next year, 1950. But in 1951, Calgary said, well, we could use this guy, so we're going to sign him. But unfortunately, after they signed him and registered the contract, Edmondson 
no, he's still under contract to us. That's our player. So now you owe us. So Calgary said, well, we got this Normie Kwong kid. He's been a pain in our backside. So we'll just swap him. Um, to put it in perspective, the guy they got was named, named Reg Clarkson. He ended up scoring two touchdowns for Calgary in his career, whereas Normie scored about 90 touchdowns for Edmonton in, in the uh, 10 years after we got him. So I'd like to think we won that trade. Uh, Calgary just likes to pretend that it didn't happen in the first place. So um, after his playing time, he got into politics. He became a businessman as well. He owned a lot of things, restaurants, gas stations, laundromats. Uh, after politics, he actually became the uh, lieutenant governor uh, of Alberta, which is, um, I don't think there's really an American equivalent to it. Um, not really. Uh, our, our premiers uh, of the province are like the governors of a state in the U.S. He's basically um, he was basically the queen's representative to Alberta. Hundred percent. So I was going to say the queen does rule when she's here. Uh, when she's not here, we have a governor general, and then each province has a lieutenant governor, and that's what uh, Normie did for many years. Uh, he also owned the Calgary Flames for a while, so he's one of the few people who has his name on the Grey Cup and on the Stanley Cup, which is uh, kind of cool. So does Wayne Gretzky. Um, you know, but he was just an incredible guy. He was the uh, leading rusher. He was a fullback by the time he got to Edmonton, uh, leading rusher several times in a year. And as a Canadian, when you had all these Americans coming in at that point, that was a, a real, you know, badge of honor. And uh, his record for most yards in a season by a Canadian didn't get broken until, you know, 50, 60 years later. Wow. Wow. Scott? Yeah. The, uh, one thing I would be interested to hear about is, is Hugh Campbell. I followed him when he went mm -hmm. to the USFL, you know, the, the Express. And then you look at, you know, at his record, which was just phenomenal, obviously. That, I mean, that 78 to 89, that'll never be seen again in professional football. I mean, that's just, you know, nothing like that's ever going to happen. Uh, I don't think. I can't imagine any team doing it. But you look at this. This is a coach who coached Wilkinson, Warren Moon, and Steve Young. I mean, that's that's a lot of pretty good quarterbacks to have during your career, even though when he was with the Oilers, a lot of success as a coach, but still. No, but I mean, I think a lot of times he went to the Oilers because of his relationship with exactly. Warren Moon, right? Exactly. Um, a fun stat about uh, Hugh Campbell is before he was the coach uh, it, with Edmondson, he was a player in Saskatchewan in the 60s. Um, and he was called Gluey Huey because he could just catch anything that got thrown his way. Um, he actually went to the Grey Cup uh, I think it was the neighborhood of 11 times in a row. He was in the championship game 11 times that he was in the CFL. He was in there in 66, 67, was in the back in the States in 68, 69. He was in the, in the uh, Grey Cup, 70 to 76. He was in the States again, teaching at uh, a college in Washington State. Came back, was six, time, six years in a row with Edmondson. We lost the first one, won five in a row. Uh, went to the LA Express and then the Houston Oilers. Came back in 86 as the president or the general manager. Went to the Great Cup in 86 and 87. I mean, that's just a run you're never going to see again, wow. for sure. Um, I, the funny part is he doesn't even have the best record as a coach if you go by winning percentage. Yeah, for Edmonton. yeah that's what I was just, just thinking here. It's in terms of the, the winningest coach in the league. I mean, really, yeah, the winningest coach in the league. Yeah, I, yeah, he's, he's, he's not at the – we know who the, who's at the top. And I, you just, you just talk about that legacy right there. Well, he's got to be near the top, and I don't know. He is near, yeah. but he's actually one one thousandth of a percent under uh, Frank Pop Ivy, who uh, 
probably is near and dear to your heart for leaving Edmonton and going to the Chicago Cardinals. Yeah, for uh, well, he didn't have a whole lot of success here. I mean, well, that for sure. Uh, he had a lot of success with us. Um, we were really lucky with coaches in the 50s. Yeah. Um, we had a guy named Flingin' Frankie Filchuk who had played with uh, the Washington Redskins, now the Washington football team. Um, there was Slingin' Sammy Baugh and Flingin' Frankie Filchuk. Reporters love that kind of stuff. <laughs> the year after him, we had uh, Daryl Royal in 1953, who had uh, sort of come fresh from his time in just becoming an assistant coach. It was his first head coaching career. Uh, was coming up to Edmonton, took us all the way uh, to the uh, playoffs, but lost uh, back then. We was a uh, best of, and we lost the third game. But when he left, he said, "Listen, there's a guy I've been, uh, you know, watching in in uh, Mississippi State that I think would be really good for the split T, which he had just introduced to Canadian football uh, by a guy by the name of Jack Parker, and uh, we ended up signing him and going to the Great Cup three more years under Frank Pop Ivey. So, yeah, not and- bad." Yeah, no. And, nice parting gift. And that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and really the success of the team is, oh, I mean, this, this, the Edmonton's, the teams have always been successful. I can't think mm. off the top. Well, I mean, it, just in general, I mean, they've had some down years. Out. I mean, every team goes through them. But when I think of it, when I think of the Edmonton team, I think of championships. Right. I mean, there was a series of DVDs that the uh, CFL put out in 2003, sort of early 2003. And it was about, uh, you had a DVD for each team. And the Edmonton one was called the Dynasty. Because that's, we seemed to win things in bunches, right? We won three in a row in the mid 50s. Uh, and then we were terrible. Like the 1960s came, we were just awful. And they were, they ended up selling Jackie Parker. They call it a trade, but they ended up selling for like, you know, a couple of players and $18,000, which in 1962 is a lot of money. Um, and they spent the rest of the decade looking for the next Jackie Parker and failing miserably. We even had uh, a guy who was a Heisman Trophy winner come out and try for us, a, a guy named Terry Baker, and uh, he couldn't do it either. So um, it was a full decade until we could get a, a quarterback in that could take us. And, um, and that was a, a guy named Bruce Lemmerman who had played for the Falcons and then came to us. And then six months later, we got Tom Wilkinson and, and everything changed. We again started winning. We went to the gray cup nine times in 10 years and won it uh, six times. So not bad. Yeah. I just remember uh, in the later seventies in the States, they weren't showing any CFL games. So my own information came from, you know, standings yep. and, you know, Edmonton, Edmonton, Edmonton. It just got ridiculous, you know, because I, I picked the Ticats as my team way back in the day. Sure. Yep. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, this is just, this is damn absurd that, that Edmonton is winning every single year. I mean, yep. because again, just, you know, five consecutive championships. That's just, if if you're the team winning them, it's fantastic. If you're everyone else, you're thinking, good grief, but, you know, why even bother? There's a reason everybody hates the Yankees. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and the funny part is a lot of people, especially in Canada, will talk about, oh, well, you guys were just, you know, there was no salary cap. You guys were just buying championships back then. But you talk to anyone that was a player, and our general manager was a guy named Norm Kimball, and he was famous for being the cheapest guy out there. Like, he would recycle pencils if he could type of thing. So, you know, I, which is it? Is we were just paying all the players, or he was the cheapest guy out there, and he just made it work. So, I don't know. Yeah, I think it depends on which side of the uh, of the fan line you're on, which one you believe. 
one thing that's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go, go ahead, Scott, I'm sorry. No, I'm just, one thing I'm curious about, and, and this is probably a generalization, so it's, it's silly, but when you have a guy in the CFL, whether it's a coach or a player, and they move on to the NFL, generally, is it like, well, we kind of figured that was going to happen, or does it just depend on, on the player or the coach? I mean, where, as far as how hard the fans might take it, like say, you know, when you lost Warren Moon. Yeah, that was a tough one for sure. We kind of knew it was going to happen. Um, we just felt he was too talented. Like, honestly, if it had been a different era, we wouldn't have seen Warren Moon up here anyway. Uh, the fact was he was uh, an African-American playing a position that not a lot of teams were uh, having African-Americans play. So they were saying, well, listen, we'll draft you, even though you're the MVP of the Rose Bowl, but only if you're not playing your own position. If you're, uh, you know, a, a a safety or you're a receiver will draft you. He's like, no, I want to play quarterback. So that's the only reason we saw him up in Canada. And so it was just a matter of borrowed time because we figured eventually he's going to be too good. He can't be ignored. And, and, you know, six years, five years later, he, six years later, he was so. Yeah. And it's almost a, and it's, it, to me, it's a crime that he never made it to the Super Bowl down here. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, between him and Marino, they're always talking about the greatest quarterback to never win the big one. Right. So. And I would have to go. I would have to go with Moon on that one, because Moon's yeah, one I mean, champion. Yeah, I'm biased. So yeah, yeah. And well, and that's you know we get into these discussions down here, and I'm sure you see it on Twitter. Um, yep. Occasionally, you will have the trolls down here going, "Well, CFL football is not really not real football." Mm. And then you then you start throwing names out at them, and it's like you throw all these names, starting with Warren Moon and working your way from there, and then like, oh, I didn't know he played in the CFL, and that's. Yeah. You know, and now in terms of talent going down from the CFL to the NFL, and you've had a lot of guys who've made it down here and moved back up, vice versa. Who do you, who do you think, besides Warren Moon, we'll just toss mm-hmm. him out, we'll, we'll set him aside. But in terms of the most famous player to come down to the States from Edmonton, who is not a quarterback, who would that be? From Edmonton? Yeah. Oh, that's a tougher one. Not a lot of players from Edmonton necessarily. I sort of think of the CFL as a whole. And you're going to have guys like Cameron Wake, uh, right. who was like an absolute beast up here, played for the BC Lions, went down to the States, went to, was it Miami? Uh, and did exceptionally well, was winning Defensive Players of the Year awards. Uh, Doug, Doug Flutie is another name right. that sort of gets tossed around a lot. Or um, uh, what's his name from Calgary? Ended up going to... Um, the Rock? No, no. <laughs> it was also up there for sure. I think that's probably uh, funny you should say that, but I think the most famous people that played for Edmonton and went to the States are probably guys that are wrestlers. Um, okay. You know, I mean, we had a defensive tackle, big, big dude that um, is The Rock's cousin and is an exceptionally famous wrestler now named Roman Reigns. Really? And he was Joe Anawai when he played for us. Uh, Stu Hart, Fritz von Erich, these were all... Uh, Edmondson Eskimos at one point. So I actually did a, a whole history segment on guys that played for Edmonton that ended up becoming professional wrestlers. Oh, Gene wow. Kaniski. Yeah. I missed yeah that so those are probably the more famous guys for sure. Uh, we had uh, Dave Campbell from uh, 630 Shed, which is the radio voice of the, uh, of the Elks now uh, yeah. on, and he's a massive wrestling mark. So I made sure to sort of custom tailor that when he was going to be on. So at least I knew he was paying attention. <laughs> Scott? 
That's, no, I, I was just thinking of uh, you'd mentioned all the, the football players that become wrestlers, which I guess is, you know, is a pretty good segue. Yeah. And also imagine they can make a pretty good living doing that too. I mean, probably, uh, you know, especially if you're dealing with a lineman or someone like that from back in the day, they, they probably made a lot better money when they became a wrestler than, than when they were playing pro football. Yeah. And the best part is like you automatically, you were sort of known, at least when you were around Canada, mm -hmm. but you automatically were either a, a good guy or a bad guy, depending on the city you were playing in. Right. <laughs> um, there was a guy that played for Hamilton since you're a tie cats fan um, named Angelo Mosca, who was oh. a King Kong Mosca in, in his wrestling days. Um, but he played against BC in the mid sixties and um, he ended up coming over like to tackle the uh, star running back for BC clipped him in the, in the helmet with his knee and knocked him out of the game. And Hamilton went on to win the game. After that moment, he was a villain in BC the rest of his career. And you may have seen it in 20, so 2014, uh, uh, 20, when him, and, him and Joe Cap. Joe yeah. Joe Cap went at it and they were like two 80 year old men swinging. And that was because of that 1963 game. So we're talking a 50-year grudge, you know. But it was just amazing to be there and be like, like oh, my God. Yeah, it was yeah, 2011, 2014, one of the years I was there. So Yeah, I remember wow. seeing that on video. And it was, yeah. you know, it was, it was cringeworthy, but I couldn't look away. You know, I mean, this was – you're right. I mean, this was, this was dead serious. And it, yeah. just, it got so out of hand so quickly. And, I mean, let's face it. Joe Cap is, is pretty good at promotion, but – Angela Mosker was a wrestler and he had a book that had just come out. So right. we we're like, Oh, this can't be real. No, they were swinging. And the <laughs> thing is both those guys could back it up on the field too. Yes, absolutely. You can find pictures of them, like just, you know, fingers dug in each other's chest, like from back then. So, yeah. 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 Hey, and in terms where, you know, going back to the early history of the, yeah, you know, I'm just gonna say Eskimos because I'm so used to saying it. But we'll, yep. you know, we'll we'll go for, we'll go because we're 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 a history show, so we'll talk it. We'll talk it. We'll you know. Um, but in terms of where they played, okay, so they've they've been playing at Commonwealth forever, almost going on what? Yeah, so it's going on 45, at least 45, going on 45 years. Yeah, 43, something like that. So what's kind of where have they played at over the years, starting from the beginning, and I guess yeah. working our way till now. Yeah, so they've really only played at four different parks in the city. Um, they started off in a place called Diamond Park, which is sort of just uh, just below downtown. Um, it was a, a combination baseball field and football field back then, just had the stands on one side. Um, and they played in there until 1927. And then in 28, they moved to a place called Renfrew Park, which is the new baseball field that they've sort of been building up. Um, because their baseball team had gotten bigger and they needed bigger stands. So they started uh, playing there in 28 and then they went there and then Edmonton folded right after that, came back in 32, folded in, you know, right away, or sorry, came back in 28, folded in, in uh, 32, came back in 38. And in 38, um, Joe Clark, who was the mayor, donated some land, which was formerly a penitentiary, uh, to build a, a bigger stadium because, again, football is now getting bigger. And so that was Clark Stadium named in his honor. And that was so okay. 38. And then they went there from 38 to 78. Okay. Uh, so I was there at the last game for Clark there at the first game for Commonwealth. And like I said, Clark was a, like, they called it the grand old dam, uh, grand old dame of, of football stadiums. It was very quaint. It held 25, 28,000 people. Uh, Warren Moon in one of the interviews I've seen said 
when he was first signed, he said, okay, this is where we're going to be playing. And he's looking at it going, my high school is this size. Like, this is tiny. And they said, but we're building this 60,000-seat stadium right beside it. And he said, I don't want to say that, you know, if it wasn't for that stadium, I wouldn't have come up. But uh, it, it certainly helped me signing there, that's for sure. Yeah, wow. And at the time, when that stadium, when Commonwealth was built, that was a huge thing. Because even, even in comparison to the stadiums down here, uh, that was that was equal, if not superior, than what was we had down here at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was smaller than it, it got to. Um, they didn't have end zones or uh, seats in the corners. They had them just in the end zones and just between the goal lines. So they had sort of this grass little knolls uh, in each corner. Um, so it was maybe, you know, 48, 50,000 people, still a good size. It right. was big enough to be the, you know, the second largest stadium in Canada at the time. The uh, Olympic Stadium in Montreal was the biggest. Um but that was massive. We had the Olympic, uh, the sort of the Commonwealth Games, sort of like the Olympics, but only for the Commonwealth countries. We only allow people that you know have the Queen on their money um, <laughs> that get to compete against each other, so that way Canada can do well. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was a massive boost for us. Much like the '88 Olympics were for Calgary, right? They got a lot of infrastructure built. We got Commonwealth Stadium, and it's still there, and it's still massive. You know, it built up to sixty thousand, uh, sixty-two thousand at one point. Right. And it's, I mean, I assume as stadiums go for a stadium that age and you're there every weekend, Yep. you know, that the team plays, How, is it, is it aged at all? Yeah. Well, they've done a lot of renovations. Um, yeah. They've added more seats. So again, it was 48 to 50,000 when it started, it got up to 62,000 at one point. And then they sort of branched it back, making bigger seats, just a little more comfortable. So people are there. So now it's just about just under 60,000, uh, maybe 55,000, somewhere in there. Um, uh, but no, it's done well. I mean, it was very Spartan. Like it's just concrete and steel and glass. That's it. So it, it has sort of a timeless look to it, but it's huge. Uh, because we don't fill it that often, if at all anymore, it, it looks a lot smaller, like crowd-wise on TV, because you're seeing all these empty seats. But, you know, we still have more people than any other stadium, like going to games than any other stadium in the country, because, you well, know, there are only 28,000. Yeah, Beer Garden always help. <laughs> we were figuring, we, you know, we have got the, they have the Rum Hut in, in Winnipeg. Maybe we'll have the uh, Rut Hut here, because we're Elks, so... <laughs> I love the fact that you do have a stadium that, you know, you mentioned it was Spartan and, you know, yeah, but, you know, here in the States, it seems like, you know, after five years, a team declares its stadium obsolete. So, you know, I mean, you look at the Atlanta Falcons, I mean, the Georgia Dome, I think had been in existence for 20 years when boom, it implodes and here's Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Has there ever been any, any groups that have tried to push Edmonton to, to do something and to go with the dome stadium or, or anything of that nature. Uh, I know that when they originally built it, it was built with the ability to have a dome added later, but we got it for a song. I think it was $18 million in 1978, which is nothing for a stadium, uh, especially one of that size. But I mean, now if we were to put a a dome on it, it'd be like $200 million. So it's just not worth it. And, and it, it, it doesn't need to be replaced because it's still quite functional and there's not a lot of people using it. I mean, we're up in, in Canada and we are the northernmost CFL team in that manner. So, you know, once it starts getting to October, November, those are some cold games. So like we're seeing, 
you know, what would it be in Fahrenheit, like 10 below, 20 below sometimes. When I was at Grey Cup one year, it was 35 below Fahrenheit. So, you know, those are some pretty chilly areas. So it doesn't get used for anything other than football. So how do you justify spending 200, 300, 400 million dollars on a stadium that might get used, you know, 30, 40 times a year? I'm just trying to think what the the fan experience must be like, because I'm a guy from the deep south. And, yep. and, you know, throughout my newspaper career, I never really covered a cold weather game or if it was right. a cold weather game, you know, it was in a dome or whatever. I just can't imagine. And you've obviously you've experienced it. Yep. How do you how do you enjoy it when it's 20 below zero and the winds blow? I mean, my gosh, I know it's an experience, but that just seems like it would be horrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of players about uh, playing in domes versus playing outside. And whether they're American or Canadian, they always say that outside is a better experience because yeah, football isn't a perfect game. Like it was never meant to be played in pristine conditions, right? You see those classic black and white photos of guys with mud all over them and picking turf out of their visors, their masks. Uh, and that's what football is, right? Like we were the last team to have a, a grass field up until like only a few years ago, really, before we finally replaced it. Um, and it was, that was to me, it was football. So I've always said that uh, it's just never quite as cold when you win uh, and when you're losing, yeah, it's pretty miserable. So, I mean, if you've been in a, a stadium when it's minus 20 and you're sitting on a, uh, like your feet are on concrete and you're on a hard plastic seat, it's leaching the heat out of you. So you just dress for it, right? You have a lot of those uh, electric battery packs you can put in coats that will keep it warm. You have the, the little hot shot things you stick in your gloves and, and you wear your five layers of toques. And there's a word for your podcast listeners. Uh, <laughs> you know, I guess I could say, you know, knit cap or beanie, but no, up here we, it's a we watched Doug, and, Doug and Bob McKenzie. We know mm-hmm. what a toque is. So. <laughs> well, that was actually filmed here. That's the awesome part is the SCTV where they started was filmed here in Edmonton. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I yeah. always thought it was filmed in Toronto. It started off in Toronto first year, and then they got a grant to come to Alberta. So they came to Edmonton, and that's really where it took off was in Edmonton. There's a, they built a statue two years ago to Bob and Doug McKenzie. It's sitting not far from the uh, ice rink, the arena. Huh. Oh, man, that's great. I loved SCTV. Yeah, absolutely. Well, SCTV was Canada's introduction, you know, the introduction for most Americans to Canada. Right. You yeah. think about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who better than Bob and Doug McKenzie to, to introduce? And to this day, we're still quoting Bob and Doug lines. 100%. Whether it's, you know, this the old show or the movie Strange Brew, which was just sort of a, a one of those rites of passage to be a Canadian. I think you have to watch that movie. Oh, yeah. That one or, you know, Men with Brooms. Or uh, <laughs> what was it? Canadian Bacon's another one. It's It's okay. Oh. But it's it's it's, it's got uh, John Candy in it, so I mean, how yeah, do you go well, wrong? Yeah, yeah. How, you it, can't it, go you can't go wrong if, if it's John Candy. You can't go wrong in any movie. Yeah, and he's got the CFL connection. He did own the Toronto knots uh, for a while with Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, in talking about ownership, let's just kind of go down that road here with uh, Edmonton. You know, obviously here in the states, the Packers are the only community-owned team, but in Canada, right. you got three. Absolutely. Edmund being one of them. How did that come about? Well, that's the thing is we've always been a community owned team. Uh, a lot of people up here sort of assume community owned means it's owned by the city. It isn't. There is a, a group of people that sort of hold the rights to it, but it is virtually run in, in concert with the city itself. Um, so the three 
community-owned team, sorry, uh, are all in the race. It's Edmondson, Saskatchewan, and Winnipeg. Um, and those are some of the ones that have had some real success. Um, I think that the fans feel a lot more connected to the team because they feel that it's, it is a community-owned team, so they are out in the community a lot. So, I mean, it's a sport where I can see the star quarterback just going down the street, signing autographs for kids. You know, I can I can go to uh, our, you know, the big exhibition that happens every year in the summer, and you'll see all the players there working with special needs kids, taking them on rides, just having a ball. And it's just, they are part of our community, and we are part of them. And it's just such a, an accessible uh, way to, to connect with your fans. And I think that's part of why it's been around for over 100 years. Well, and that's part of the magic of the CFL, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but because it is community owned team and they have a lot more restrictions, you don't have a big splashy owner. Um, Toronto being the obvious one, Toronto is the city in Canada. So they always have to do that big splash of signing the, the name players. Right. So, you know, they always seem to be the guys that are the oldest. They were, you know, in their mid to late thirties that are being signed, or it's a guy that was a huge name in the States and they were going to bring him up to, uh, to Canada. Joe Theismann being a great example uh, he was supposed to sign in the States. Uh, Leo Cahill was the general manager of Toronto because they had a private owner and he could say, I'll just throw whatever money you want. So they went down, they signed him, brought him up to Canada and uh, really kind of ticked off the, I think, Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I remember Joe Dolphins. Robbie was not pleased at all when, when that no, happened. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And that Leo the Lip, because he had the gift to gab. He was a good little Irishman, um, played for Notre Dame in college and didn't do much, but then came to Canada and started coaching and yeah, he was able to charm the birds out of trees, I got to tell you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, they had these guys playing up here and we were playing against them. And it's like, how do you compete with all these huge names? And sometimes it's just because you're playing against those names, you are up for those games. And, you know, sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. And when you win, it's a big deal here. <laughs> this is a, a goob question, I know. But but now that there's been the name change and everything, the, the Elks and stuff, when I saw the helmets, I really liked it. Yeah. It looked good. So just uh, your reaction and then just in general, it seems like people are really positive about not only the name change, but also the, the new look of the team. Yeah, uh, I think keeping the colors really helped a lot. Uh, we were, for many, many years, we were all blue and white. And when we came back in 49, we needed uniforms. And university was folding their football program. And the university colors are green and gold. So they said, well, you can... Well, depending on who you hear, it's either they were donated or sold to the new team. And so those became our colors. And we're like, okay, well, now we're the green and gold. And uh, it became synonymous with Edmonton. Like the green and gold was something you get called almost as much as you called them the Eskimos. Um, so we had to keep those colors. So that was the first thing. The second thing is they wanted to keep the old EE logo. So it had to be something that so you had that connection to the past. So I think they really did it right. A lot of people are complaining, how come we haven't got the new name? How come we haven't got the new name? But they wanted to make sure that when they had it, A, they had merchandise to sell because they knew people were going to want to buy it. They had to make sure they had the right logos in place. They had to have everyone buying on board. And I think they nailed it. Um, I was always a big fan of the Elks name. Um, partly because they, uh, the connection to the past where we were the Elks in 1922. But um, also, I just thought it had a real strong name that didn't, 
you didn't see everywhere else. Like Eagles was the name that was thrown out. And I'm like, well, there already is an Eagles. Like you don't want to be confused with another team. And there just wasn't any other pro team called the Elks. Uh, Elk Island National Park are from here in Edmondson. So there's that connection as well. And I just thought it could do really well. And then the logo came out and that logo is fantastic. It really is. Um, yeah. Uh, the antlers on the elk itself are the letter E, which I thought was brilliant. Um, the colors just match really well. Like it's just, they really hit it out of the park. And I, I love the way the antlers look on the helmet now. Um, Smitty's seen, I've, I collect a lot of helmets, game worn helmets. And so now I've got a spot already placed for that, uh, that antler helmet when they certainly go for sale. And uh, I think that because it looks so good and they did it so right, the buy-in was huge. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You had a lot of people there. There's always going to be people that are like, Nope, I like the old name, but in Ottawa, they've changed the name, you know, three times, well, twice since right. they were the rough riders up until 96. Yeah. So yeah, they've changed it twice. They were the rough riders until 96 came back in 02 as the renegades until 06 and then came back as the red blacks. And at the time, everyone's like, that's the dumbest name ever. Red, what's a red black? Like, I don't even know what that means. Um, because their and cars now it's were become like a religion. It's become a religion in Ottawa. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think if you give it a few years and, and people under the age of 20 love the new name, love the new brand. And that's our future of the fans in the right. stand. So, right. Well, and you guys had talked on your show too, before the name came out, you know, just merch from a merchandising standpoint, this is, yeah. you know, you know, all the antlers in the stands. And, you know, you think about it too, this couple things here, they, the name came out, they yep. dropped. And when you saw that logo, at least when I saw the logo on the field, I'm like, oh yeah, they're going to have a season moving forward yep. because you can't have all this hoopla and not have a season to go with Hunt. it. Yeah. That was, I think the other thing too, is they wanted to make sure like at least be like 85% sure we're playing. So they don't be like, oh, look, you're going to buy a jersey, you're going to buy a hat, and you're going to wait around the city because there's no games to watch. So, right, you know, I think yeah. that was another part of why it was delayed so long. And uh, I don't know who they got to do their, uh, their marketing or their brand, uh, but I got to tell you, uh, I mean, I've already bought a bunch of shirts and some, you know, some sweatshirts. And, I find uh, that hard to believe with you. I know. <laughs> pretty crazy so i mean anyone that's sort of seen my room and, and i'll get you some pictures uh so you can sort of see it like it's like we are marinating in green and gold here to to borrow a phrase that our good friend dave jameson used when he first saw the turf district it's like it's surrounding if this is gonna be my work office i want to make sure i'm pretty happy in it so now oh, yeah. i've just got a lot of room now for some elk stuff so yeah, yeah. well the foam antlers and you know elk i mean call yeah, there's oh, yeah. So, well that's from from just a the marketing on it was just genius. It's like, yeah, you know, you got, and, and you, and I don't know if I heard the news, was it today or, but the, they made in revenue on merchandise, the equivalent of three home games. Yeah. And this is a gate driven league. Yeah. So when you're making, you know, the equivalent of a third of your season in just a month with no football, Right. I think that really bodes well for us right now because it's yeah. expensive to change a brand. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't just, you know, just say, okay, well, we're going to change the brand and spend $3 million when you're in the CFL. Right. Well, and branding is always important, but you know, so many, and that's where my frustration with the CFL was getting up until that point when the logo dropped, there was a lot of, well, we can't do that. We can't, we, we, we got it. You know, 
and then boom the logo came out and it was like everything had changed and it went from completely negative in the league to now completely positive so now hope you know obviously like you said it's a gate driven league so hopefully 100%. gate revenues will follow which i think they will yeah, having missed an entire year of football, it's like that old phrase, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Right. And, and having missed an entire season, I mean, this is the first time there has been someone competing for the Grey Cup since 1918. Like, I mean, we're talking over 100 years. Like, even during World War II, there were teams competing for the Grey Cup. Um, so this has been a huge, uh, something that we've never seen in our lifetimes. Right. So, I mean, we're we're not the average fan, obviously. Um, so we're going to go to the games regardless. But I think right. that even those that were sort of casual walk up fans were like, damn, I really miss going to see football. Like in the summer, sitting in the stadium, you got your beer, you got your stale yeah. hot dog or whatever, you know, that always just tastes so good. Um, yeah. Well, you're seeing it here now, too, because all the stadiums here yeah. have opened up. I mean, Absolutely. Wrigley, Wrigley, Wrigley is packed. Heck, even uh, even Sox Park, they they got pe- they've got people there, and normally yeah. that place is a mausoleum when it comes to attendance. So right, absolutely, because again, everyone's been cooped up in their house. Now I can get out. We're outside, so it's safer. A lot of people have at least their first, if not second dose, and if people don't have it, at least you're getting that herd immunity, yeah. which I think is a great term we can use when we're Elks fans now. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's there's so That's much. Not- yeah. Go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, I, I would just say, you know, we, you guys were talking about the, you know, the gate-driven aspect. Of the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's what I don't think people in this part of the country really understand, because if you look at the NFL, they could play in an empty stadium with their TV deals. 100%. Fine, you know, but that's obviously not the case with the CFL. And that's, you know, even though I'm a, you know, south of the border guy, that anytime I tune in a CFL game, regardless of who's playing, whether it's the Ticats or whatever, I'm just hoping it's going to be close to packed. And anytime I see that it's just, you know, a smattering of fans, I'm thinking, damn, guys, don't do this. I mean, watch your game, support, yeah. you know, support your game. <laughs> that sort of is that sort of CFL joke about Toronto um, not having a ton of fans. And I, I think it's kind of sad because if you go to the games, you'll see everyone's on one side. And unfortunately, it's the same side the cameras are. So the cameras are voicing the other side, which is in the sun. And it can get super hot and humid there, right? I mean, it's not unlike New York weather-wise. So in the middle of August, who wants to be sitting when it's, you know, 100, 105 degrees and the humidity up pushing in another 10 degrees? Nobody. So they're on the other side in the shade, but the cameras are picking that up. So they are getting fans, but... You know, a city with 6 million people should be able to draw 30,000 to a game, right? Yeah. Well, and, you know, they were talking about, again, like going back to, you know, you know me, I listen to all the CFL podcasts. Yeah. And they were talking about just in terms of TV ratings, the TV ratings in Toronto are always higher for the Argos than they are, say, for the, the soccer team. But yeah. when it comes to attendance, it's flipped over. Because yeah, they're saying, I mean, and I agree, soccer is a is one of those sports that you need to watch in person. Well, that's part of it, but also because the three largest cities in Canada also have the most immigrants, right? So you have people coming from all over the world to Canada. They go to Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and what they bring from wherever they come from, almost everyone knows soccer. Right. Like they know the rules because that, whether you're from 
you know, China, Australia, England, you know, middle of Africa, anywhere, South America, they all have soccer. So they can go there, they can watch the sport, they know the rules and the way they go. Uh, Canadian football, even like much like American football, they don't know those rules. And there's a lot of them, right? Okay, what did he do there? Why is he getting in trouble? How come he's, you know, yeah, that and, the kind other of thing, pro- right? and the other thing too is they change every year, let's face it. But right, it absolutely. What I mean, side of the border you're on? Every year you've got rule changes that even for those of us who grew up with it are like, wait a minute, I didn't know that rule had changed. That's right. Like if you breathe now on the quarterback, that's a, it's a yeah. 10-yard penalty. Is that how well, it goes? The tuck rule is a great example. Mm. <laughs> I was hoping that would come up. Yeah, God, I love these rules that are specific for one player. Um, yeah. Normie Kwong, actually, you talked about him earlier, had a rule um, where you were in the grasp. You were not considered down if you could still be crawling forward. So he would be able to carry like two guys on his back and still keep moving forward like inches at a time. So the whistle would just wouldn't go and he would get an extra two, three yards this way until they said, okay, you're considered in the grasp. So that became the Normie Kwong rule. Oh, wow. In Canadian football. So, yeah, I mean, the basic rules are the same, right? You're still scoring the same points um, regardless, right? You know, right. you're still getting your, your, you can get a one, you can get a two, you can get three, you can get a six, yeah. you can get a two point convert at the end of it. Right. And the beautiful thing about Canadian football is the punter actually matters. Absolutely. Well, the punter matters a lot. I mean, up until the sort of the early 70s, punter was just, something you did when you played another position you're a receiver you're a running back you're a defense you're also the punter yeah you know even quarterbacks you'd you know you're throwing the ball and then it's like third down so you'd be punting right. um we had a guy who was right out of our uh, high school in edmonton he was a 17 year old kid that walked on in 1977 and they're like okay this kid's too young but he had a size 15 foot and he could kick that ball 80 yards down the field, uh, a guy named Hank Elisic, uh, known as Hank the Shank. Um, like this is a guy that would be kicking field goals from the 35 yard line the other way. Wow. Um, yeah. And then we're talking 110 yard field. So it's another 10 yards on top of that. Right. So 75 yard field goals. And, you know, he would hook them a bit to the left and they said, if he could ever fix that, he'd be a hell of a, you know, kicker and punter, but he changed the game. Like he would literally yeah. tilt the field out punting the other guy, 10, 15 yards. Yeah. And that makes a big difference. Right. And, you know, especially too, when you've got to return that ball, otherwise you're, you're losing a point. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they had. They had a big campaign, you know, it's the Rouge, get the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just one of those things It was trying to encourage more excitement in the game instead of just every time you punt it goes to the end zone the guy just leaves it and everyone just congregates at the you know the 25 35 whatever it was at the time yeah um they want to make it so people aren't just going to the bathroom or going to get a beer when it's punting time and i I really like the rule um it does encourage it people say it's uh you know it's a point for missing a field goal but it's not really it's just trying to make it no you've got to get it out of the end zone and if you get stopped in the two-yard line and that's a long field to be going down, right? Yeah. So, well, and it's it's, thing, so it's 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 these little it's these things that make Canadian football different to me. And I know mm. Scott and I have had this conversation. Sure. That to me, you know, and I we could even go down the speculation road, but I know you guys have done you you guys have done that on your show. We've done that a little bit yep. on ours. But really, you think and without really speculating, if if you know moving forward, 
hopefully whatever happens with you know the XFL or whatever, they're going to take what's bet what the the things that are special from the CFL, the Rouge being one of them, and three downs. Yeah. And let's just say a wider field, maybe a longer. I don't know if you really need a longer field. You know. Yeah, I could see them staying a because it's sixty-five yards versus fifty-two and a half, right in the right. NFL. I could see it being sixty-five yards by a hundred instead of one hundred and ten. Um, I don't think that would change too much, but if you start taking away that extra person on the field, like is making it eleven players. Instead of 12, that's a yeah. pretty big field to only have 11 players on. Yeah. That's the reason we have 12 players is because it's a much bigger field. Right. Uh, so if you're going to keep that, you need your 12 players. Uh, I love having unlimited motion in the backfield. Um, what they call the waggle, where you can have, you know, four guys hitting that line when the ball is snapped and your def- guys don't know where it's going. <laughs> I, I love those sort of things that really encourage excitement. Um the NFL used to be a much run happier game and much like the CFL did, but the CFL moved to the passing into the seventies. Um, whereas the NFL was still running a lot more and that three downs is why they have to pass more. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love, yeah. I love every single rule about the CFL. As a matter of fact, I'm an older guy, so I missed the 25 yard deep end zones. Yeah. I used, to, I used to think it was great when you had, you know, fourth down and the five yard line, you could throw a deep ball, you know, I just yeah, thought absolutely. that was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, and there's still 20 yards here, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still 10 yards, and the um, the goal posts are on the goal line. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that makes a difference, too, because now that's an actual defender. Right. There's many times where, you know, the quarterback will throw that ball and doink right off the upright. It's, it's, it's you know, when you need – I mean, it's the ultimate pick play. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, getting back and talking about just running backs in general, I mean, you and I both know the pain. Let's talk running backs in terms of oh. – you know, you and I both are very familiar of the pain of having Mike Pringle on our teams, our Absolutely. simulation teams. So <laughs> well, we, we've, we've learned the hard way that, you know, just because you have a running back doesn't mean you're going to get much out of them. Well, I, I didn't have uh, Pringle on my team. That was Andrew. My, the, oh, was uh, it? Oh, that's yes. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean was one of those guys that was just a beast uh for anyone listening that doesn't really know much about mike pringle he was the first and only player in canadian football to have a season where he rushed over 2,000 yards um he was just one of those guys and that was in the late 90s and 98 um when he was playing for montreal uh yeah. he had played for the baltimore colts slash cflers in the first year the stallions in the second year um and he was just he was a force and you had at the time Tracy Ham was the quarterback right. and he was a running quarterback. And the fact that you had no way of knowing, are they going to throw the ball? Are they going to be a quarterback keep or is it going to be an option play? Like all these different things just made them so powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, the simulation game maybe got it wrong a little bit because I think, I think it was so. still a lot more. I think so. And, you know, I know Scott and I have told Scott about, you know, our CFL simulation game league that we're, that we play in. That, um, you know, really to me, and, you know, talking about that in terms of how I really have started enjoying the simulation game has made the C- enjoying the CFL that much more enjoyable because as we've yeah. played, you know, even though my team, I think I'm one in seven now at where I stand in the standings, but it's been enjoyable because when I play against you, when I play against Andrew, I've learned so much just yeah. in talking to you guys in terms of the history of not only the, not only Edmonton teams, but CFL in general. Yeah, I, I really like, so we're playing in a league 
where everyone has a team from a different year, which I think is really cool. I mean, I'm playing the 1981 Edmonton Eskimos, so I'm the oldest team in our league, and we've got someone playing the 2019 Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and it's kind of cool to see if you had the you know, a team from 81 and you had the team for 2019 and you were to have a time machine and get them to play each other. Yeah. How would that work? Right. Because I mean, I'm a huge Steelers fan, as you mentioned. And to me, I think one of my favorite teams was the 76 Steelers who didn't even go to the Super Bowl that year. Right. Um, but the, their defense was just absolutely outrageous yeah. that year. I think in the last seven or eight games, they allowed like 30 points total. It yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it would just be neat to see how would that team stack up against the 85 Bears. You know, I mean, I think the Bears got it, but it would be just cool to see how they would play against each other, right? And yeah. what rules are they using? Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that without getting too down the rabbit hole in terms of my, you know, between my simulation uh, football leagues. But, you know, I've given a few leagues where, you know, one league I've got the 72, I basically have the 72 Steelers or the nice. 73 Steelers. And I looked at who I have now. I'm like, I, th- and I was, I was, didn't even make to 500 for the 72 season. Yeah. But then I looked at the 73 team that I have coming up and I'm like, Oh my God, I could be dangerous. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm just like looking at the, the measurements, but you know, going back to what you were saying, you know, in terms of us playing in this in the league that we've been playing in, it's been enjoyable playing with those figures from history because for guys like Scott and I, we didn't grow up playing with these guys. So getting to know, getting to know them over the course of it, you know, right now an eight game season is where we're at has been enjoyable. And, you know, Doug Ballinger having the 91 Argonauts. Yeah. It really, to me, he's the top team in the league too. He is the team to beat for, you know, but yeah, it's been enjoyable to see. Yeah. How, you know, how would the 91, that 91 Argos team or, you know, your 81, the 81 Eskimos and the 91 Eskimos stack up against the Stallions? Because to me, the Stallions, at least everything we know, just looking at the stats were one of the greatest team ever. But then we went to play the game and obviously it hasn't quite worked out that way. Yeah, well, they didn't use dice in the real thing, right? So (laughs) that was their one advantage. The 95 Stallions. So in 93, uh, if I was in a lot of trouble financially, sounds familiar. Um, and so they decided they needed to get an infusion of capital. And the only way they could do that is to have a team join the league. So there's no way they could have like Victoria, BC or London, Ontario join the CFL. So they went to the States and they went to places at the time that didn't have NFL teams. So they went to Sacramento or they went to San Antonio or they went to Baltimore where the Colts had left. And it was extremely popular and they were able to save the league because of it. So you had the only problem is they were okay with the rules. You know, the end zones maybe had to be rounded because they didn't have stadiums that were quite as big. Um, but the one rule you couldn't have is the residency rule. Yeah. So in the CFL, you have to have a, a certain percent of your players must be, you know, they've been called Canadians. They've been called nationals. They've been called non imports, whatever the term is, you know, it's basically Canadians. So either you were born in Canada parents were born in Canada or you learned how to play football in Canada, then you qualify and you need to have just over 50% of them must be Canadian. Um, in the States, you can't have that rule. So as a result, like they tried to have it, you know, they have to be from the state, right? So if you're a Baltimore, you've got to, you know, 50% have to be from Maryland. 
And that just that doesn't fly because the laws right. don't permit that. So you had an all-American Baltimore team playing against a team that's half Canadian. Yeah. And so it was a point of pride, right? right? So in 94, Baltimore went to the Grey Cup and played BC. BC won. Like, you watch that game now, and it is Canada versus the U.S. Yeah. Like, it's, it's pretty impressive. And it is. It's watching that game. And Scott, I know, has seen the Grey Cup, that Grey Cup game, too. That's an enjoyable one to watch just because, mm-hmm. and you know, even though we know how the game turned out, you know, I've watched it enough times. I start rooting for BC. I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. And then of course, Calgary blew it and allowed Baltimore to take the great cup south of the border the next year. So yeah, I yeah. like sticking it to that. So yeah, Scott, I'm sorry. I'm hogging up all the airtime here. <laughs> no, no, I was, I was, I was thinking about the, the American experiment in my year with the Barracudas, which I thought yeah. was just going to be a lifetime of joy. But um, Absolutely, which is great in the book, by the way. I really oh, enjoy that. Oh, thanks. Um, the, the thing about that, though, you know, the opening game was against Hamilton, which is kind yes, of cool sir. for me being a Ticats fan. Nearly 40,000 fans there, so I'm thinking, yeah. this is great. But then once traditional American football started, yes. oh, my gosh, it was just – it was really sad at the end when they're drawing 2,000 people to a team. And no, the Barracudas weren't great, but they were a playoff team. You know, Absolutely. You know, um, that was, of course, by then you kind of knew that the end was near. But that, that was really, really heartbreaking for me because I was just so excited about finally Birmingham having a team in an established league. And I thought, oh, this has got to work. This is going to be the yeah. best thing ever. And a league you had followed before, which I think is really cool too. Uh, Las Vegas in 94 was – so badly their final home game they ended up moving to Edmonton so Edmonton the Eskimos were the away team in Commonwealth Stadium for that last game so yeah well uh, you know anyways. and it's funny you know I'm sorry I didn't mean to, but no you know, reading about reading about the history of that time period and then you know reading about just thinking about a CFL team in Vegas yeah and oh my god the heat yeah that's all I'm thinking because I mean I've been in that heat in July and it's not forgiving. So I can only imagine playing, and they were playing, I think, on artificial turf too at the time. 100%. I never reflected that heat like crazy. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of that expansion, you know, it was, you know, because we were talking to um, um, Paul Woods a couple shows ago. 100%. And, yeah. And he, when he was talking about John Kim, and to me, and after talking to him and, and, and reading a little bit more, to me, John Candy saved the league. He did. And, but then, you know, thinking about that action that was put in place, did that's where you wonder, you know, 25 years on, how did they not see that they would have an issue? And it's just, it's funny. And this is why, it's part of the reason why, you know, Scott and I kind of got this, the podcast started because other than your, your podcast, nobody's really talking a whole lot about CFL history. Right. You know, that we, and it's, it's been more, CFL history has become, I've heard more CFL history since March, since the XFL talk started up. Right. And, you know, obviously in all the years I've been listening to podcasts. So, um, and I know you and I have become good friends just by with Twitter and everything. And you've taught me a lot about the CFL, especially Edmonton football history. And, you know, because of our friendship, I have a few more books than I normally would have on, on the <laughs> Edmonton football history. So, with that said, when are you going to write a book? Uh, you know, actually, I've been planning on writing 
one for years now. I mean, I'm not a writer, right? I'm a, right. I work in IT. I got my start in music. Uh, I was working for a music software company. And I sort of transitioned from that recording production side and playing to the IT side. Um, but I have a passion for the league, the team, the city. Um, so I, I've certainly got stuff kind of bouncing around in my head. So I think it will happen one day. It's just, you know, I've got yeah. a nine-year-old at home and yeah. uh, I'm working a lot of hours. So right. it's just... Well, what about eventually? Well, what even about maybe a website? Yeah, that's certainly been in there as well. But I'm so picky about it. Yeah, I want it to be perfect, and that's that's kind of slowing it down a bit. But eventually, something will drop. So you know, I should sell at least dozens of copies. Yeah, well, I definitely. I mean, because you, it's just fascinating to hear this. I mean, not only do you know the history, but you tell it in such an entertaining way. Oh, thank you. uh, I would, I would love to to see it in print. Yeah. It'll get there. Yeah. And you've lived through it too. I mean, that's the other part of it. I mean, you were there during I'm all the years. Come on. <laughs> well, you started at age five. So yeah, you've yeah. lived through it. Yeah. I've been there from the seventies on for sure. You know, um, I would, I always, you know, you think about even just the three of us, all of us, we were all, we were all born into a world where Lombardi coached the Packers. So we've lived yeah. through history. So absolutely. We just let, we're at the right time. Right. So again, I started what my dad took me to a football game. Edmonton's in the Grey Cup. The next, uh, you know, couple months later, Pittsburgh wins their their Super Bowl for the first time. You know, I just happened to come in at that at that right time. Yeah. And since then, 45, 50 years later, I'm still cheering for those teams. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think we've all learned, especially the last year, is just how much we need football. Yep, 100%. I mean, I like baseball, don't get me wrong, and you guys know, I mean, I, I've told you guys, both of you guys offline, you know, heck, I, I, you know, every pitch of the ninth, of the 2016 World Series, I watched and was very emotional the day after the Cubs won, but yep. when it comes to, I mean, football has always been my, my main sport, yes. and that's the, the one thing I've learned, especially during the last 15 months is, and I've actually seen on the, on the CFL side of it, in terms of the small group, you know, we're all kind of in a small group and it's a nice little echo chamber. I mean, none of us, we throw politics aside and it's all about the league, but that's the one thing that to me has, you know, part of our friendship started, it was just football. And so that's the one thing that as we're moving forward, it's going to be fun now with the season to be on Twitter and just watching the smack talk. It's all the football family, right? We always yeah. say friends off for these three hours. Yeah. And that's the great thing about the CFL, which I know we've all talked about, is just, uh, you know, I root for the Ticats. But beyond that, I root for the entire league. I mean, I want not so in terms of wins and losses, but I want every single team, you know, to be a success financially. I just want to see a healthy league. 100%. And, uh, I always say I'm a CFL fan. I just cheer for Edmonton. Absolutely. Right. right. Absolutely. And even, you know, I was going back and forth on Twitter this week about um, one of uh, you know one of the XFL podcasters. But the thing about the XFL podcasters, and I don't know how much you guys have listened to the guys down here, got some really good guy, some really good guys who are XFL sure. podcasters, really starting to learn the game and really yeah. starting to enjoy it. And that's been fun listening to them and them kind of getting to know the game. You've got some people that are kind of still kind of dismissive of the Canadian game, but they don't know the Canadian game. They don't know the history of it. And it's been fun. You know, and I always, and I tell people, 
talk to them offline. I'm like, have you listened to the Turf District? Have you listened to anybody on the on the on the Canadian Football Podcast Network? Yeah, I'm like that's where you need to go if you want to know about the game. You have to go back, dig through the archives with the old shows, and listen. You know, when you did your when you've done your history segment, you know there there's a whole knowledge base out there. So I always tell them, I go reach out to them and have them on your on your show. Get to know For the sure. league a little bit better. Yeah, we love talking. Yeah. So with that said, and I know, hey, we're kind of over the limit here. And I know you've got things to do tonight. Um, one last, hey, Scott, any final questions for, for Mike? No, other than I just absolutely love this. And I'm, I'm going to buy an, an Elks t-shirt too. Even though I'm a Ticats oh, fan. Even though I'm a Ticats fan, I got to have one of those shirts. Oh, it's going to look good on you. <laughs> Mike, where, where can everybody find you, buddy? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place to interact with me. You can find me there at 56 Parkies. Uh, or if you're interested more in the history, you can go to at EDM history and that's H I S T O R E E. And Twitter also, box. And, uh, yeah, just uh, hit me up and we'll chat and uh, we'll talk some football. All right, buddy. And when any, any idea when you guys are going to be recording next over at the turf district, uh, we were supposed to be doing it on Monday, but our guest fell through. So we're hoping we'll get to the, the money coming up. Awesome. Awesome. All right, buddy. Well, listen, thank you for being on the show and we will talk to y'all hopefully very soon. Good Thanks night. Thanks for having me. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, 
Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.